Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Janelle Monet first landed in our pop culture universe as Android Messiah Cindy Mayweather in 2007. Her song Primetime, though, a sexy duet with Miguel, failed to break into primetime. Today, I seek justice. Uh, cue the Law and Order gavel sound oh, here. Damn. Is that what it is? Bonk bonk. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be a gavel. It's the Law and Order oh. bonk bonk. It also love... sounds like jail doors closing. Maybe. Oh, maybe it's like a. But is it? Oh, maybe I don't it know. is. I just think of it as a bonk bonk noise. So. <laughs> bonk bonk. Yeah. Um. So we're here. We're here. Um, it's it's a beautiful springtime Sunday. Is it springtime technically? It's like it's like it's not breaking right? into spring. I don't know. Those, it is. We have a we have a plum tree, nectar plum tree in our backyard, and I can see it from this window, and um, it's in bloom. Yeah, I mean, certain things. Yeah, we are getting little flowers on some of the plants outside. Um, our we have a I think it's a California elm tree in our front yard. And it's one of the few trees in California that like will drop its leaves during the quote unquote winter. Um, oh, does it drop the spiky ball things? It does. Okay. It does. I think that's what we had in front of our house before it died during the drought. Yeah. So this one, I mean, it's it's well watered, but like it it has so many leaves. But also like there are also so many leaves that are dead, you know, from the winter mm-hmm. that are not falling off. And it really bothers me. I'm just like... I want them all to come down. Even with um, these Santa Ana winds? Yeah, you know, it'll it's crazy the amount of leaves that were still falling from the tree that are like polluting my 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 front yard, but also the amount of leaves that are still holding on. And I went to go like try to break one off because I was like, come on, leaf, come down. And it was stuck. So wait, how tall is this tree? Uh 30 40 feet 30 feet wait are you like climbing up into this tree to just try no and no 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 there's leaves like that are kind of on the low-hanging branches oh okay okay yeah yeah that like that are like at like eye level you know okay um but they're not they're not fallen they're like really stiff it's crazy tenacious so you were around when the tree had full foliage yeah yeah okay because i was gonna say when our tree died it looked like it had dropped most of its leaf but it was actually <laughs> dead so there was like leaves stuck to it and then we waited for it to come back in the spring and it never did. It just was dead. I, I mean, I'm assuming it was fully green when we first saw the house, which okay. was in August. Okay. That should be fine. I mean, yeah, because our tree gradually died over the course of like five years. Yeah. During the drought. And then it got um, mites or something. In it, and oh, it could no longer mm. absorb water and it died. It died. And then the the city of LA said that they were going to have to come out and remove this tree. And we waited for over a year and they never came to do it. So we just paid to do it ourselves because we just had a dead tree in our yard for 18 months. We were on like this list, like this, the bureaucracy of the city of Los Angeles is that they actually determined that our tree would need to be removed because in the meantime, other trees on our block had actually been dying and the dead trees would either fall over in the wind or they would lose a whole branch in the wind and crush uh, yeah. a car. Yeah, yeah, and I was telling Davey, I was, I was telling Davey, I was like, we, that can't be us. Like, I don't want to be the, the house that has the tree fall on a car. Yeah. And so 
you know, the city of LA came out. They were like, yes, your tree is dead. Yes, your tree needs to be removed. We're referring your case to this tree service. Okay. Um, I get a call or an email from the tree service saying like, you're confirmed on this list of trees to be removed for the city. Um, we cannot tell you um, how many people there are ahead of you. We cannot tell you when this will happen. Please do not contact us. So it's like it's like Cedar Sinai and my coronavirus vaccine uh, appointment. Yeah, you know, it's it like, was very uh, that. I was like, okay. So I tried to contact the city again, and I was like, um, okay. You know, I know that, like. You can't give me any information, but it's been 18 months since I got this email saying that I'm on a, on a list and there was nothing they could do. So, cause I was just like, is, is there anything I can do? And they're like, well, you can do it yourself. I was like, okay, do I need to tell anyone that I'm doing this? Like, what if I do it? And then this tree service comes in like three years looking for this tree to remove. Yeah. Like, well, oh my God, we put a new tree out there. What if they come and then they come now, like five year, fully five years later? Yeah, I was just going to say. What and if they, they rip out now? the tree that we replaced the dead tree with. <laughs> I don't, you know how long ago this is? I don't even remember your old tree. Well, our whole street has trees up and down it. It's the same. It's the, We had the same tree that everyone else on our block oh, has. Oh, was, was it in your yard or was it in that little strip? It was in the parkway the between the sidewalk okay. and the street. Okay, okay. Yeah, and it was dead for most of the time that we lived here. So anyway, um, I was going to ask if you had seen the Cecil hotel documentary on Netflix. No. Okay. And I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm aware of it. I remember the story when it came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause it's particularly horrifying. Um, I'm not really into those. Okay. Like I mean, true, for, those that... I, for like true crime or like yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. like I'm not into that. Maybe we're not a true crime podcast. To our detriment. <laughs> um, but, you know, for those who don't know that this uh, Asian woman from Canada came down to Los Angeles, like, what was it? Almost, almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. And um, she disappeared from this sketchy hotel in downtown LA. And then there's this massive police hunt. And then it turned out that she was dead in the water tower on the roof of the Cecil Hotel the whole time. Um, there was this creepy surveillance video. I think that's the thing that really caught everyone's attention was that the police released this surveillance video of her like doing some strange things in the hotel elevator. And you couldn't really figure out what was going on. Like, was she by herself? Was she being chased? Like was the elevator haunted? Oh, but we watched it. We watched it the same week that I watched the Britney Spears, the framing Britney documentary. And the interesting thing about the Cecil Hotel documentary on Netflix is I was wondering the whole time that we were going into it was like, why isn't this just an episode of Forensic Files? Why is this actually like a Netflix show? Because I feel like Netflix, they always try to do something different with their programming, right? Like they're not yeah. just replicating things that exist elsewhere. So it's kind of like, oh, why? Like, what are they going to bring to this that isn't, you know, the standard Forensic Files fare? And I was actually surprised by... The attention that they paid to like online amateur sleuths and they had a couple of people on the show being interviewed about their participation in this like amateur detective work Uh that was happening in real time as information was coming out from the police and all the conspiracy theories and all of the stuff that happened that I didn't realize was happening at the time. My take on it was that the, the viewpoint of the people making this documentary was that these 
amateur sleuths were a detriment to the investigation. Okay. I was trying to tell Davey, I was like, there's something about the way that these people are being presented to us. And even like the fictionalized footage of them where it's like some guy hunched over at a computer and the lights all green and his room's all dark. I'm like, they're, they're, they're giving us a negative connotation of this practice of Mm -hmm. all these people that were on YouTube making claims, making false claims and, um, you know, going off of basically stuff that was accessible to them as a member of the public. And Mm -hmm. so in in a way I thought that it was a little bit of a, um, an indictment of that type of behavior because basically what you come to find out is that just using things available on YouTube and whatnot, they were, they were making these accusations against this like Mexican, like black metal musician who had also stayed at the Cecil hotel, but Mm -hmm. fully a year prior to that and they had no evidence they they had no actual evidence that this guy was there or anything yeah right in fact there was when the police actually look into it like there's evidence that he was nowhere near los angeles at the time that he was in mexico at the time that elisa lamb was at the hotel so but these you know amateur detectives and whatnot on, on the internet like they hard accuse him and his life is somewhat ruined by this. He just, he, he's interviewed and he says like, after it all happened and like people were coming after him, like he tried to commit suicide, like Jesus, because people were so convinced that he was responsible for this woman's death and he had like nothing to do with it. Um, what was my point? Oh, but my point was, and I don't know, I don't want to make this parallel like solid, but we were, when I was watching the framing Britney documentary and they profile a lot of the hashtag free Britney activists. Mm-hmm. I will say that the framing Britney Spears documentary f- frames the hashtag free Britney movement in a much more positive light. I heard that comment actually uh, the other day I was listening to another podcast and they were like, you know, it's, it's kind of oddly like fan service. Yeah. Like, a little bit, right? Like it, it like to your point about how they portray advocates for a certain thing differently than like yours like it's it's much more sympathetic when there is a way in which you could look at it and be like these people are a little off yeah well i want to be careful because one of our one of our friends is um at the forefront of the hashtag free well, Britney movement I, but yeah what i will say is that like to me there's a parallel in the amount of access that to information that people have as the general public. And mm-hmm. so I feel like there's a danger in acting on limited information as a member of the public, right? And that's kind of exemplified by the events of the Cecil Hotel documentary that a lot of these people thought that they had enough information to go off of to connect the dots, so to speak, but clearly they clearly they didn't. And it, it makes me wonder cuz you know, I I think that the whole Britney Spears thing is has been shrouded in a little bit of mystery for a long time. Like we really don't yeah. know anything. Like there are things going back to like, um, and they didn't talk about this in the documentary. I don't know why. There was a point where Sam Lutfi had supposedly that's Britney's boyfriend, right? No, no, no. That was her manager. Her oh. her boyfriend was um, wasn't it his name Adnan? Oh yes, 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 yes. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Sam Litfi was the guy that took over as her manager while she was kind of going rogue 
in mm-hmm. 2007, 2008. But there, you know, there was a, there was a while where supposedly like he was helping her to sneak messages out to the public because she was being somewhat held captive. Mm-hmm. None of that ever got cleared up for me, but there's any, any, anyway. So are well, we the hotel Cecil of pop culture? <laughs> flops we are uh using publicly available information um oh sorry the docu- the netflix documentary of the hotel cecil mm. uh you know where we use publicly available information to piece together yeah we have no we something... have no expertise we have no special access to anything but i think that's also why we talk a lot well i talk a lot about feelings i'm not trying i'm not here to i'm not here to <laughs> throw accusations around to people I, I will tell you that, uh, you know, just as an example of how different we are, um, one thing that I did start watching uh, this week, because it's now available on Disney+, Plus, is our old episodes of The Muppet Show. Oh, Davey has been watching that. I, You know, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a Muppets fan. I'm not a... I don't, I don't love The Muppet Show all the time. I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a variety show, right? So like there's parts of it that work and there's parts that don't. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an interesting beast from the seventies, early eighties that, um, you know, in watching it, cause Adam had never really watched it. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't know the Muppet show was a TV show that ran for five seasons. It had, you know, the whole cast of Muppets interacting with celebrities of the day. Um, you know, sort of at the fictional Muppet Theater, these celebrities would come on ostensibly as guests to perform in the show. And then, you know, there'd be little um, interstitial elements where it'd be like backstage and, you know, the different dramas and things that were going on between the guests and the and the cast and, and all of that. Um, kind of like a 30 Rock, but with Muppets. Correct. Right. You know, to some extent. Because um, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was fully like 50 percent backstage. And then. Yeah. Yeah, like Miss Piggy getting jealous of the, or Miss Piggy like falling in love with the male co-star and mm-hmm. uh, who might be like, I don't know, Liberace that week, you know? Um, but, you know, one thing in watching it that really struck me was, because I used to watch it, I don't know what station it was on, but as a kid, it used they used to play reruns mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on TV. And I remember always being fascinated. And I think, you know, I can look at the Muppet show, honestly, as sort of the genesis of my interest in pop culture and celebrity and music, just, just, you know, just pop culture in general, really, because I think it was the first time that I saw that like characters from one world, the Muppet world could interact with actors who were playing themselves but also were not their characters from the way from shows that I knew them from. Right. So, mm-hmm. and just like realizing that there was this whole industry and there's this whole, there's a lot of fun to be had there. So I don't know that that's really cool. I'm excited that there are like five seasons available. Um, we yeah, skipped it's funny. ahead. We had, we owned the first three seasons on DVD, but for whatever reason, they had never released the final two seasons on DVD. I don't know if it was like a mm. licensing issue or what, um, cause who's on the last, like Liza Minnelli is in the last two yeah. seasons. Yeah. Um, there's a couple interesting ones. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause there's, 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 there's interesting people throughout and there's like actually like a lot of celebrities that you would have forgotten about Linda Lavin, Linda Lavin, yeah, Linda we watched Lavin. the Linda Lavin episode yesterday and I was like, Oh, why? I was like, who is this woman? I was like, I know this woman. And it's like, Oh, she, she was the star of Alice. Like Britt Eklund, you yeah. know, like, like, but yeah, but I, I we watched the episode with Madeline Kahn, 
Oh, okay, that's that's early in like yeah, season yeah, one it's or like two, right? second two, season two, yeah. So, do they anyway. do they do the disclaimer for the early seasons that talks about how the show in like in hindsight is pretty insensitive and like there's jokes that are no longer acceptable? I did not see that. Okay, but we've been it getting does make more sense. like when we started watching it because it's not it's not on the DVDs. The DVDs were released in like the mid two thousands. Um, but now that they have these on streaming on Disney plus, like there's a disclaimer at the beginning. That's basically saying like, yes, we know a lot of this is racist. Yes. We know a lot of this is sexist, but we've chosen to keep it in. Yeah. Cause be aware that this is going to happen, that there's going to be a big Chinese, a big Chinese monkey making ching chong noises across the stage. Like, (laughs) (laughs) cause we were, we were talking about it. I haven't gotten to that episode. I was like, what happened? Like, what exactly happens? Like, I know the humor can get a little bit weird and a little bit off color, but I was like, I was trying to think about like, oh man, like what kind of crazy racist stuff do they do in the show? And, and sure enough, in the next episode, they're talking about Chinese gorillas for some reason. And then a gorilla puppet comes on stage and is wearing like a, a a rice paddy hat. Oh wow. Making all kinds of like, um, I think he's just saying a bunch of like Chinese food names, but it was, I was, I was like, Oh, Oh, right on cue. I guess, you know, I didn't see the disclaimer, but you know, in the episode that we watched, um, the Swedish chef is preparing a meal and he, he's going to prepare a lobster. And so he takes a lobster and the lobster's like, no. And he puts the lobster in the boiling water. And, um, then the set, well, the set is stormed by a band of like, Mexican lobster banditos who come in like sort of be like (laughs) and like shooting in the air and like rescuing their friend. (laughs) They've got little mustaches and hats and like serapes and then they kind of back away. (laughs) Problematic. Problematic. (laughs) Um, I was watching going, what is happening? Anything else to report? No. (laughs) I think we're good. I'm looking around like, is there anything around me to report? I don't No, let's uh you know, when we come back we'll just talk about Janelle Monet. Okay. And get going. You know what, Jason? What? I'd like people to know that we have a website. Oh, well yeah. actually do I want people to know that we have a okay. Full disclosure, I have not updated our website in like three weeks. Um, full disclosure, I have not posted to Instagram in two weeks. So um, thank you, dedicated listeners, for listening, continuing to listen to this show because there is no possible way that you know that new episodes are happening because we're not telling you. We're not telling you at all. Um, but this will change. And to pressure myself to change, I'm going to let you know that our website is flopperdeaver.com where you can find, well, someday you'll be able to find uh, links, playlists, all the things that we're talking about today. It'll be there. I promise. Cross my heart, hope to die just did my taxes <laughs> if i can do my taxes in the month of february wow um, i can update a website once a week i can post to instagram you. once a week i filed I everything yesterday i like put all of my stuff to be ready to file my taxes okay yesterday but i haven't done it yet you're ahead of us okay yeah we, right. we just filed yesterday so we'll see how that goes anyway check out our website flopperdemer.com Email us, flopperteamer at gmail.com. You know what? I'm going to tell you now. I'm not going to wait till the end to tell you, hey, it, it helps us out if you rate, review, and subscribe to our, our uh, podcast. There's like buttons. There's buttons in places on Spotify and Apple and stuff to just like, you know, follow us or something. Just do it. Just, just do, do it. it. Smash, anyway. Smash that button. Smash it um, or, or tap it gently. 
caress it. Yes. No, don't caress it because I don't I don't know if that gesture will register as like a click. True. Yeah. But um press press reasonably hard so that um the code understands your intentions. Anyway, we'll be right back. Well, we're back. And so today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the song Primetime by Janelle Monet featuring Miguel off of her second studio album, Electric Lady. Um, Primetime is the third single from this album, and it's a swoony electro R&B slow jam released in August of 2013. This is kind of a first for Janelle. For anyone who's familiar with Janelle Monet. This is that first kind of sensual, sexy track, like the first overtly romantic track that she'd done. Um, Janelle Monet famously is performed, up to this point, and performed um, as her alter ego, Cindy Mayweather, who was an android, a time-traveling android from the future, who was on the run um, from an authoritarian government that had banned androids from falling in love with humans so um that's kind of the backstory like she'd had a couple albums up to that point um or sorry she'd had (laughs) yeah roll it back roll it back i know i know well she'd had an ep and then an out then then an album and then this album so she'd been building this story and so you know there's a lot of like um kind of dancey songs uh, it's you know post-apocalyptic funk psychedelic r&b but this song was very different it's it's dreamy it's nostalgic actually when the song opens it reminds me of i don't know if you're familiar barry but the the flamingos version of i only have eyes for you it's um it's like one of those songs that's used in like david lynch type of movies it's um got that 1950s electric guitar that it just sounds it's like a cold vibrato that's the only way i can describe it as it's like the kind of song that you'd hear in a movie about space and there's like maybe a a tape player like floating through the air it's sort of ominous but sort of Mm -hmm. dreamy and it's like there's like a metallic clang to the reverb um which is i mean is it is it fair that I associate that kind of with Miguel? No, no, I think okay. that's fair. I think like that's I see fair. the connective tissue between this yeah. song in that regard and hashtag beautiful with Miguel with Mariah Carey. Yes, well, and that's we'll talk about that because I think it's really interesting. So, so yeah, so there's this cold, spacey vibrato. It's lush, but with like a metallic tang. It opens with a chorus of breathy ooze and a hazy guitar line that's submerged in and around the slow and steady 808s. The soundscape of this song feels, at the same time, it feels very expansive, but also intimate and, and, and um, like I said, romantic. Janelle starts the song singing that she's counting down the hours until she and the one she loves can be together. Um, Miguel takes the second verse. He's sexy and smooth. And there's a, there's, a, there's a line in the song where he asks, is that okay? And the way he asks, is that okay, made me not okay. Like, <laughs> I was like, I remember I was like, oh my God, Miguel. Just makes me swoon. Um, the song is kind of, you know, it's it's typical me. It's kind of slow. But again, it's that's not really a Janelle Monet thing. 
So, you know, Janelle Monáe songs are usually very kinetic, um, you know, just lots of energy, lots of exposition, lots of things happening. And in this song, it's just like kind of taking a beat to just kind of settle in. And, um, you know, Barry, I'm always talking with you about how much I love a good bridge into the final chorus. Um, mm-hmm. I talk about how that means so much to me in terms of like a song building to something. This song is a little different in its construction in that in place of a bridge, like a typical bridge, it's like a spoken verse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Janelle's kind of, you know, just talking talking to her man. And... um immediately following the spoken verse there's uh like a soulful guitar solo that's kind of that's very like prince adjacent like or you know it's very princey prince inspired um and then you get the final chorus so it's not the typical explosive final act that i usually talk about but but i also think that it's perfect i think i love everything about this song it feels like a romantic late night drive or like a walk on the beach it just feels like a very nighttime and dreamy and just like being with this person that like you have an intense crush and relationship with not like a not like an established love but just like that beginning that opening part of a relationship do you do you know this song i do know this song what um, are your thoughts on we song? own this I mean, uh album on vinyl this song um I'm curious because I know what songs you like on this album. So, and I like I them mean, too. This album is, I mean, this song is not my favorite on the album. Mm-hmm. I mean, hot take. I feel like there was this prime time to collaborate with Miguel and none of it ever panned out for anybody. Well, it's interesting because when we talk about, so, so prime time, you know, comes out in August of 2013 in May of 2013, Mariah Carey released her collaboration with Miguel, which was hashtag beautiful. That song, I mean, as far as charting, did did much better than Janelle's version. They're similar, but they're not the same. Mariah at the time was a judge on the on uh, American Idol, mm-hmm. and so you know, first of all, she's Mariah Carey. Um, Miguel had been kind of heating up. Right, like from the year before with his albums, kind of burst on the scene and was. What was that song that everyone just. Adorn? Adorn, yes. Yeah. Like he's just, he had this like sexy energy, just kind of a different different take on R&B, I think from like what a lot of the the male R&B singers were doing. It was mm-hmm. a little more altern- alternative. And in that sense, like maybe more of a spiritual uh uh, uh, relative to Janelle's music than than Mariah Carey, but Mariah obviously is Mariah, and you know leveraged not just her Mariah platform, but the platform of American Idol to launch their version of the of this or their their collaboration in the beginning of the summer, and beautiful hashtag beautiful. I, I talk about primetime being sort of. It's nighttime. It feels very nighttime. There's like a chilliness to the reverb. There's a chilliness to sort of the delivery. Beautiful is kind of the exact opposite. Everything about beautiful is, it's like summery and very mm-hmm. shimmery. It just like feels effervescent and like golden. If like you, if, if, if those were things that you could like hear in a recording, um, it has a similar retro electric guitar vibe but the the reverb is much warmer 
it's not that metallic sort of cold reverb. Um, another interesting thing about the song, beautiful, is that Mariah doesn't come in until like the back third of the song. Like, you know, mm-hmm. she like Miguel basically takes the whole first part of the song, but the way they combine works really well. I think. Um, I think. Especially at the time, I thought this was the best example of Mariah's sound being updated for the time. Um, you know, she'd been coasting kind of on her We Belong Together laurels for a while, and it kind of was a little repetitive. I thought that Miguel's sort of flow and his his production influence really suited Mariah's vocal tendencies. She was able to really, it, it just, it sounded, it sounded so sweet and it was like kind of a perfect song for the summer. Beautiful hits number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100, which for Mariah isn't great, but for a pop song, I mean, that's not bad to hit 15. Number three on the Hot R&B chart. Primetime, which comes out at the end of that same summer, hits number 20 on the bubbling under, which means it was essentially 120 on the Hot 100. Mm-hmm. Um, and the highest it went on the Hot R&B chart was number 36. So, like, it, you know, for all intents and purposes, it disappeared. Um, it's not just an album track. It was a single from the album. It just didn't get the same love. And, and um, you know, there's, there's a couple of reasons that I think contribute to that. But... You said that you didn't think that Mariah's, or that either collaboration or any collaboration with Miguel at the time was really successful. Well, Do you just mean of these two, or, or or from anybody? No, I guess I guess just just between those two, I thought it was interesting. It seemed like am I am I making a confluence out of two things? But I guess because I think about like at any at any particular point in time when so- something happens or there's a there's a collaboration or appearance of someone that occurs more than once and it feels like they're trying to make something happen and then it doesn't happen. I think I've brought yeah, like up, they're, this they're up trying before. to like, make a moment. Yeah. Like I, I, I think I brought up before that for a while, everyone wanted to work with Dev Hines from blood orange. And there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of failed Dev Hines blood orange produced <laughs> singles out there for a bunch of different artists. Um, and it just kind of felt like there was there was a groundswell of support for this type of thing to be created. But then once it was actually created, it didn't take off in the way that it seemed like it, it might have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially with the Mariah Carey single, because that was supposed to kind of that was supposed to save um, Elusive Chanteuse. Yeah. yeah. You know, but and I think that that's I think that's the big failure of that's the big failure of hashtag beautiful is that that came out. Yes, it was moderately successful, not a great result for Mariah Carey, Mm -hmm. maybe good for her at the time. It didn't change the trajectory. Yeah. Like she wasn't releasing a lot of hit singles at that point in time, but it did not, it did not make people any more interested in that album. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's, so it's a little bit different with primetime for Janelle Monet featuring Miguel. Um, this was the third single. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a very different single. Yes. I will say that I don't think I liked any of the singles um, up to this point for this album. Like I, I the song, the song queen took a long mm-hmm. time to uh, catch on with me. I feel like, I feel like Janelle Monae has a few different kind of lanes 
that she makes music in. And they're all very different. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like she'll make these like kind of frenetic, almost orchestral songs. She'll make these very spare funk inspired songs. And then, you know, as we'll see, she'll start to do more commercial pop songs or R&B songs. Yeah, I, I think that's what's interesting about her is that it's it's something we talk about kind of on this podcast a lot is how sometimes in retrospect when we dig into people, like I'm listening, you know, we're revisiting albums with a 2020, 2021 mindset, right? Like knowing everything that, knowing what was there, knowing what's come out since. And, and sometimes, sometimes it's hard to be like, wait, why wasn't this popular? Like, I actually really like this, you know, given given like three or four years in between and being like, oh, I think that's what's interesting about Janelle is that she, you know, I, listening to this, I was kind of the same as you. I, I liked this album a lot at the time, but I was the same. Like, I, I wasn't sure that I really was into Queen. I wasn't sure that I was really, even Electric Lady. Um, Dance Apocalyptic was fun, but like, it's you know it's it's frenetic like you say like she's she like her her method of delivery is like so fast sometimes it's like it's almost spinning out of control which i guess is the point but listening now i'm like wait these are i love this like this is actually really good and and now that i know more about her story and what she was putting into it and like what everything like every you know all the symbolism behind it queen is a song that's with um erica badu and the the acronym is so queen is an acronym it's q q stands for queer u stands for untouchables e is for immigrants and excluded and then n was for negroes hmm it was originally going to be queer and you could hear it in the background sometimes like some of the loops she had been percolating on this like her 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 Alter Ego, Cindy Mayweather, and the idea of the android character was built around this idea of otherness. And, you know, it was supposed to be, you know, the android is a stand-in for anyone who felt other and who didn't feel like they were part of society. You know, it was it was someone that they could relate to. And <clears throat> fighting for all the people who'd, who'd been put down or just minorities who just weren't free to be themselves or free to do what they wanted. And so Queen was like an anthem about or for those people right representing Mm -hmm. all these people and um i don't know like her her next album by the time she gets to so this is 2013 by the time she releases dirty computer in 2018 she you know it's been five years and she's able to kind of fully express like like that was her like tiptoeing into coming out in 2018, she ends up coming. Janelle Monae comes out as pansexual. Um, she reveals that she's had relationships with both men and women, and and then she, you know she kind of explains how that was starting to come out through her work before, like mm-hmm. in you know all of her previous albums. But she'd never felt comfortable being explicit about it. So I yeah. think that's kind of the thing about some of Janelle Monae's songs. They're all and her albums in particular. They're very conceptual. They're you know epic sci-fi story space opera over multiple years well put together but to your point just like full of all different kinds of influences musically cinematically yeah artistically that i think it was because she was using it sort of as a as a way to to guard herself 
mm-hmm. right? Protect herself. You know, you, you you could critique the character and not necessarily the artist because it was all performance. It it just made it harder for, I think, just the lay person to relate to what was going on. Like, unless you were yeah. fully invested in the story, like, you didn't really care and it was hard. Maybe it was hard to have an entry point to even liking the music. Yeah. Well, I mean, beyond that, I don't think that this... I don't think that the majority of her music was palatable for like a pop audience. I really yeah. don't like it's not, Which it's, is... it's, it's all over the place. It, it, it contains so many weird oddball references that I think you have to appreciate the references or just the diversity of sound that she's bringing in order to like the music at all. Which, which you know? is interesting. Cause Adam and I were talking about that and I understand that. I understand what you're saying because because Adam was talking about that too because we we've had you know we were talking about the experience of playing her first EP which was Metropolis and both of us our reaction being like this is insane and amazing like all of the you know to your point like all the different references it's it's cinematic right mm-hmm. in a way like it's 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 hard to categorize because it it truly is her music truly is like what you would expect from a sci-fi soundtrack in that there's like these strings, there's there's some rock and like funk. There's opera, like operatic mm-hmm. influences. There's lots of like symphonic classical music. It sounds very Bondian, like Bondian theme song, like James Bond theme songs. We thought it was great. And I because I love all that different kind of music, I think I was more fascinated. I was I I really was drawn to it. And then when I sent some songs to like my brother, he was like, what is this? This is weird. It is. And it is weird. It's, it is, it is weird, but like, I still liked it. And I guess I just, at the time I, I underestimated how alienating the quote unquote weirdness would be because I thought like they were all done so well and kind of beautifully integrated that the result, even though it was unexpected, was beautiful and surprising and just unique. And there, I thought there was a sense of fun there too, but I don't know. Like I, 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 I think your point is uh, is obvious and and well stated. Like it was too weird for a lot of people. It's too weird. It's I mean to a point that we've made with a lot of other albums. Her albums are not. I mean beyond her albums being structured around this central arc android narrative that she's created, that really helps to structure it and make it seem kind of cool the actual songs themselves are very much like why this song and then this song and then this song and then this song aside from the fact that they play into the narrative that she's creating right like Mm -hmm. but at the same time to me there has always been still a little bit of a formula to the songs that she's creating per album and the sequence in which they're released right Mm -hmm. so like i think of like the song tightrope right like for some reason they released the song tightrope i can see the connective tissue between that song and the song um it's kind of halfway between queen and we were rock and roll like it it plays upon a lot of the same type of music i think Mm -hmm. in in a way that i don't think is representative of the albums in their entirety like i'll say that like when metropolis came out her first ep yeah her first ep metropolis metropolis I liked that much better because it did feel kind of like a modern interpretation of some kind of like sci-fi soundtrack. Yeah. And then it was after that when, when 
um, the arc android when the electric lady comes out, that then there's the introduction of just a lot of different musical influences. Like I was, I was really surprised when the single tightrope came out for the arc android because that's, it, it sounded more current, right? It was like less, it was less conceptual. It was definitely more of the time, but being utilized in service of her, of her story. But you're right. It's tightrope is produced with big boy. So mm-hmm. it has that like outcast Atlanta, sound to it it's a dancey song right is yeah. that kind of what you mean like it 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 sounds it's like part of the culture not as far removed as the first stuff yeah it doesn't sound as in world i guess mm. Mm. you know in 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 the world that she was creating with that first ep suddenly like the set the the first full album basically like sweet two and sweet is it sweet two and sweet three sweet two and three yeah you know it's kind of like suddenly there is just a, a smorgasbord of of musical influences yeah well you know? i you know and i i don't i don't necessarily mind it um i don't mind I it love, but i, I love it, those songs i think it i think it creates i think it creates like a distinct line between songs that i do and don't like by janelle Monáe. i okay. don't love i don't love tightrope i never liked like outcast mm-hmm. and i probably like tightrope better than any outcast songs because it it's a little bit more organic sounding Mm -hmm. but just fundamentally it's got like a speak singing aspect to it it's very spare in its instrumentation i think what i had really liked about the first ep was just how lush everything was built up very lush yeah it's very lush and that's why when i mean when when the arc android came out and i think she she simultaneously released Cold War and Tightrope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I downloaded them for free. I think she released them for free from by her, via her website. Yeah, and it was just really interesting because I really like the song Cold War. Yeah, you know? that's a beautiful song. Um, it's similar. It, they're similar to Tightrope, but it's like you can see why they're released sort of together, and you can see why they actually one flows into the other. I really don't. I think that they're really such polar opposite songs. I think thematically, maybe, but like. No, not I even no, not even thematically. Way. Oh, not Cold, even thematically. Cold War is so lush. It has, it has like um, a much more electronic synthy vibe to it. It's much. It's a much more melodic song. Like I think it has. Yeah, like a solid, well, for sure, it has like a solid pop hook. She I sings it. It has the, the types of things that I guess maybe I've identified in the past that I like that you maybe don't like is like the breaks to it. Mm-hmm. So it it. It goes, it goes from the driving beat of mm-hmm. the verses and the chorus, and then the beat just drops away into the back half of the chorus. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Those hills and valleys that are created in this song. Mm-hmm. So there's this, like, interesting thing with her, right? Like, she, she's very passionate about her art, and she's passionate about speaking to the people who get it and who really support her. So there's this sort of, you kind of see a push pull from the first two albums of wanting to speak specifically to those people and not necessarily caring about the broader world in a way. Mm -hmm. And then the influence of Puffy and bad boy records because what we didn't talk about was when she first came out when 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 Janelle was still in college essentially she self released Metropolis 
um, with her with her uh, with her friends who now form Wonderland Records. And it was well, Wonderland Records was already there. She released. Uh, she met them in college. They 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 found her playing um, playing her guitar on the steps of in front of the library and um, bought her CD. And then they all began to collaborate on this whole thing. And um, Janelle had sort of already created this character Cindy Mayweather and this whole storyline sort of already and and the the genesis of that is that she was obsessed with musical theater as a kid and um when she got to high school or sorry when she left high school she got into the American Academy of um performing arts and and drama or dramatic academy and it was a great opportunity but she she talks about being like the only black per- the only black woman in her class mm-hmm. and she really didn't want to do, she wanted to write her own musicals and she didn't want to do what everyone else was doing, which was like everyone standing in a room in line to vie for the same parts in the same musicals that they'd always done. And so she then leaves, she goes to Atlanta, she goes to school in Atlanta and that's where she, she meets um, the rest of these guys who would become her creative team and they self-release Metropolis, which it kind of gets the attention of Big Boy, who put her on the Idlewild soundtrack and um, an Outcast uh, like collaboration album, um, and then he brings her to the attention of Puffy or Sean Combs. He was going mm-hmm. by Puffy at the time, head of Big Boy. And I remember when I first got Metropolis and had heard that Puffy was involved. So the reason that I even probably know about Metropolis is because Puffy you know, liked what he saw. He went to her, basically Janelle's MySpace page and was like, liked that she had a fully formed look. She had songs. She had this commitment to this style. And he was like, I don't want to change any of it. I just want more people to hear you. And that was essentially sort of the genesis of their relationship she she asked him to come down to a showcase she was doing and he stopped he put he put um the filming of making the band on hold so he could go down and 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 watch her performance and that's when they that's when she he signed her the next day okay yeah but she kind of was like if you want like i've done that like if you want you have to come see me (laughs) (laughs) and so he stopped filming the show um and and then went down he his whole thing was bringing her to a broader audience and i think that was that continues to be sort of the thing that has i don't want to say plagued her but her commitment to her artistic vision butts up against like the, the, it's it's almost like counter to the desire to be more not not necessarily be more commercial but yeah Break well, I feel like more in order you know? to be an artist that breaks through, you need to play a little bit of the game. Mm-hmm. And it, from Janelle Monet's output, to a certain extent, it's like she doesn't. She like she she does things that I th- I feel like an indie artist would do things that don't well, play with the game of like yeah. I'm gonna make us like you know you hear that in order for your song to be played on radio, there needs to be a way for your song to be three minutes and thirty seconds long, like mm-hmm. three minutes and thirty seconds long exactly. And we've almost, as pop audiences, been conditioned to feel like a song that's three over three minutes and thirty seconds just feels interminable. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the uh, the destruction of our attention span, really. That like, I mean, to look at some of Janelle Monae's songs and realize like, oh, this song is like five and a half minutes long, or this song is like a minute and thirty seconds long. Like, she, it's it. Those are the actions of a woman that does not give a fuck about 
Yeah. You know, all of these constraints that are placed upon pop artists in for the sake of the opportunity to break through. Yeah. Um, and and that's why me, like yeah. the whole thing with bad boy records, because I, I, I first heard about Janelle Monet. There was either like a write up or maybe it was on NPR. It was a weird source, but I also feel like one of those like kind of um, like a pitchfork snobby kind of source mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was writing up about Janelle Monet about this EP that she was releasing. And the fact that it was, she had been signed by bad boy records. And I was like, what, what is the connection? Cause then I went, I went and I listened to the EP and I was like, Oh, I was like, what a weird move for bad boy records mm-hmm. because it wasn't, it wasn't anything like you would expect from them. Yeah. It wasn't something that you would think would ever be related to, to P Diddy really. For and sure. It, I mean, it, it, it was actually like kind of a weird idea to me that Janelle, Janelle Monet would take him up on that offer as well. Yeah. I mean, because you know, to that point, J- Bad Boy Records and Puff Daddy did not have a great track record of promoting or supporting their artists. Yeah. That was the big mystery to me was that, you know, I mean, we can talk about Danity Kane. I'm thinking about talking about Danity Kane next week, but you know, aside from kind of like the big affiliate, like Puff Daddy affiliated acts, mm-hmm. right. That had come up through big boy like, or uh, bad boy. Mm-hmm. It's like, what else did, puff daddy do puff daddy do uh he did like dream right is that the name of that group the girl group i think so yeah not not to be confused with the dream mm-hmm. the rapper but it just seemed or like in like nicole ray was on bad boy right yeah it just felt like there was a lot of people on the roster that were never ever actually releasing music or actually doing anything it felt like it just like a a vanity thing for Puff Daddy to just have. That's the way I feel a lot about the the celebrity imprints. When like a big when a big name mm-hmm. artist gets their own imprint underneath a label, right? Like Madonna had like Maverick, and then Puff Daddy had Big Boy or Bad Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, big Boy. <laughs> what a, a Mar- big boy. Mariah Carey has uh, Butterfly, the, the butterf- Monarch, uh, Monarch. You know. And well, it, yeah, in in in, in, a, in large part, it feels like those imprints are solely to puff up the ego of the celebrity, rather than to actually develop future talent. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, what's so so? What's interesting is, you know, to, exactly to your point, you know, he and I mentioned this at the beginning. Puffy had heard of Janelle from Big Boy, and he reached out to her to like to sign her or, you know, to, to have a conversation. And she talks about how, you know, at the time she'd done Metropolis. She's clearly talented, clearly like single-minded. Like she had, like I said, she had her, her vision. Right. And she would be performing and doing full shows of that Metropolis set to executives. And they would just not be paying attention or being like super dismissive. They were kind of like, you're doing sci-fi black girls. Don't get sci-fi. We don't get it. We don't get the androgyny. We don't, this isn't the right look. And, you know, she was kind of defeated, but, you know, in the New York Times profile, she talks about how she told Puffy, like, I will hear you out if you come to watch me perform. Mm -hmm. And so, because he hadn't seen her at that point yet, right? And um, that's when he halted filming and came down. 
and um, he loved what he saw. And he talks about how when he saw her, he knew that she was going to be important to music and culture. Like he said, he felt mm-hmm. the same way he felt about um, her as he felt about Biggie or Mary J. Blige when he first started mm-hmm. working with them. And like to hear them talk about it, because they don't really in, in any of the profiles that I dug up later and like all of the reporting, you don't really hear too much about their relationship after that. Right. Mm-hmm. Just that he was he felt very strongly that like, yes, it was out of left field, but he really loved what she was doing and he just believed in it. You know, I give him credit for that because like, yeah, like I I don't care about Danity Kane or Dream or whatever. Like I, I've never cared about his the other acts, you know, mm-hmm. um, and like in a lot of ways, sometimes like what he does has always seemed kind of just weird. Like, I don't know, just blingy. In a, right like for the sake of being like la la look at me well next week um, i'm gonna have to sell you on danity kane's second album welcome to the dollhouse well i i i look forward to it because i i look forward to uh don yeah. richard ta- don richard um, okay don richard okay because don richard of danity kane and this kind of dovetails into what you're talking about with janelle monet don richard i was reading yesterday that she is now signed to merge records which is like an independent mm-hmm. record label and she had been self-releasing her own solo music after the kind of demise slash on again, off again existence of Danity Kane. And, you know, they're kind of touring. Sometimes they're not touring. She talked about something to the effect of like, she's always been making electro music. Like she's trying to be a black woman making electro music, but that as a black woman, yeah. she's relegated to alternative R and B. Yeah. And she's like, I don't understand why, because, you know, she's always said that her biggest influences are um, Bjork and Imogen Heap. And she's like, I don't understand why, you know, it is that because I'm a black woman, what I do is considered alternative R&B and not electro when that's what we've been doing. And she talks about the fact that like, this is what we've been doing since that Welcome to the Dollhouse Danity Kane album Mm -hmm. is trying to push the limit of like, we're not a pop group. We're not an R&B group were creating this really cool electro music, which I think in yeah. retrospect is what that second Danity Kane album is. Um, I'm curious uh, well, to I'll research be... on it because I think that the yeah. reason that that album never actually took off is, has more to do with Puff Daddy and more to do with the television show making the band than it does yeah. with the actual music. But anyway, I, so I see the connection there with like what you're saying about Janelle Monet and her going out to try and see other labels and then being like, this is not what, this is not what we want from a young black woman. Basically, yeah. you're wearing and, a tuxedo. Yeah. You have this bump in your hair, and you're singing music that is not straightforward, like an, like an opera about an android. You're yeah, singing, you know, it's just not. We don't get it, and it's it's been really fascinating. And this is this is what I think is really interesting is that if we had had this conversation in 2010, around the time Arc Android came out, or even in 2013 when Electric Lady comes out and Prime Time comes out. It would be a very different conversation than we're having today in 2021 now that her third album, Dirty Computer, has come out and there's been much more written about her and she's felt more open to share. Um, Part of the genesis of her performing persona in the tuxedo, she talked about, you know, she performs in a tuxedo with a bouffant and it's sort of, she has sort of an androgynous, you know, look, right? Mm -hmm. Fully, I don't want to say fully clothed, but, you know, she's in a suit most of the time and she's doing all these moves at the, at the outset, she would, she would always talk about how like her mother, she was raised in Kansas city. Her mother was a hotel housekeeper and her father was a janitor and the tuxedo was sort of an homage and paid, paid homage 
to them, but also people like them who worked in the service industry, who wore a uniform and, you know, performed their jobs with dignity, did the things that other people didn't want to do. And it was to like humanize sort of that experience. And that's sort of been like what she's always wanted to do. The other aspect of it that she's talked about more recently is that like she tried to take sexualization of her off the table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what made her sort of unpalatable um, to so many people, not just in the pop space, but particularly for a black woman getting into the industry, um, doing this kind of music, because, you know, now she's not conforming to the ideal of any, you know, anyone really at the time. And she used it as a way to sort of push off because she was so committed to that character and that persona from the jump and she never wavered in interviews or whatever the unit asked like who do you date i only date androids you know like things like that like very cryptic she talks about how that was just displacement to keep people out of her life yeah right and to like keep all of the projection onto cindy mayweather it was a character that was interesting people could interrogate that but like they didn't really have to examine her and she struggled with as an artist trying to like maintain who she was and 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 if the scrutiny was on the character it wasn't on her yeah. and it gave her a little bit more freedom oh i i think you could always sense that too yeah that she had a lot of explanations about you know why she dressed the way she did why she looked the way she did or why she was building this narrative about the arc android but it all did essentially feel like a way to prevent her from having to talk about herself in any way yeah Yeah, it was always like, this is an avatar. And like, don't talk about me. This is what I'm trying to do to show, you know, all of this. I'm talking about inclusion and, um, you know, blackness and otherness and all Mm -hmm. of that. And, you know, it's not about me. It's about that. And I want to highlight that. And And um, she did it. And I think it became something that was super iconic for her. You know, that look. I I think it it helped her to become recognizable mm-hmm. like even it if you didn't know who she was it. or if you didn't if you didn't know her music like you know that look and you know yeah. that that was uniquely hers it was something that no one else was doing yeah um, i remember thinking at the time that that whole explanation about like the service industry and stuff it sounded a little cockamamie because i'm like but wait, you're in like a tuxedo like i get i get i get it i guess because it's like a like a, a waiter it's or like something. a yeah yeah but you know she's talking it's like about an elevated version yeah but at the same time, I was like, "But there's so ma- there's so much else going on here because one, it, yeah. it, it, it is a mask. It's a traditionally masculine way of dress that you're uh, embracing. It's also there's also something very vintage about it, out, like out of time uh-huh. because she always it's wore like, like retro. Sa- she would wear like saddle shoes mm-hmm. and the little little tuxedo, mm-hmm. and then yeah, have a little bouffant poof in her in the front of mm-hmm. her hair. Yeah, and it just it it it, it had that quality of a mask it's like yeah it's like michael jackson's rhinestone glove like whatever did it, that mean or it's that um, distance it's that yeah. distance from uh, really allowing you to get into to identify with a care with a person with an artist yeah because it's just a character and I mean, not just a character. I don't. But we really be believed but that that was her. I mean, we did, we did. But I mean, like you know, do you remember? Do you remember when we saw her at the Viper Room in 2010? I do, I do. So, so we saw Janelle Monae at the Viper Room at the 2010, 2010. Do you remember who opened for her? Bruno Mars. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little, a little young upstart named Bruno Mars opened for yeah. her. Yeah, and the Viper Room 
that venue maybe holds a hundred people, 150 yeah. people. Yeah. Famously um, where River Phoenix died or he died outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's the Viper Room's like main claim to fame. But yeah, we saw her there and I remember, so Bruno Mars, obviously like he opens for her and I remember turning, I turned it and I was like, he's going to be really big. I think he's like a little Michael Jackson. <laughs> Well, we were Cut like, to. everyone was like, who is this? Well, I, I feel like there little was kid? like, a, who is this guy? I think at that yeah. point, he only had that one song on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the song with B.O.B.? Nothing on You? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was, he, and that wasn't even his song. That was a feature that he did on a B.O.B. Yeah. song. Yeah. And um, he was literally nobody. And the, he was performing in the Viper Room. I feel like there was a crowd of people there that were there specifically for him. A, gr- a group of, mm-hmm. of screaming, screaming young ladies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at the, t- at the and at the time it was like, oh, who's this dude opening for Janelle Monae? Yeah. And then little did we know that little did we know he would he would he would eclipse her completely. Eclipse her. I mean, but but like so, I pulled up an LA God bless Weekly. A, God re- bless a short man that can. Um, <laughs> that can move like that and belt. Or that can that can rise to stardom. Yeah. Well, For I me remember to think when someone's I, short. Like he's got to be shorter than me, right? He's like yeah, five three. I think so. I think so. Okay. But like I, I, we saw him a few years later after his Super Bowl performance. Uh, you know, we saw him at the Hollywood Bowl, and he talked about like almost with tears in his eyes about how like when he and his friends and his band would like play at these little clubs up and down Sunset they never dreamed they'd be playing at the Hollywood bowl and it sold out like three nights or something like it was a huge run for him. And I remember being like, that was us. That was us. We were there. We We weren't there for you. We were there for Janelle Monae. (laughs) But, but we, you know, so I pulled up an LA weekly review of the performance that we went to. And Um, obviously 2020 is a different time. 2010 was a different time, but listen to this paragraph. You might not expect such heavy hitting from a tiny black chick dressed like a dude from some B-list Motown band. On her first EP, Janelle claims to be an alien from outer space, but really, she's just a lost, completely gorgeous Marvelette who probably listened to too much David Bowie growing up. I, I am I'm ready to look this man up and fight him in the street. I will say, though, okay, so even back then... I think I think that when we saw Janelle Monae at the Viper Room, that was actually the second time I had seen her. Um, we, me and Davy saw her at a slightly larger venue mm. around the time that Metropolis Suite came out. I can't even remember the venue. Mm-hmm. I think the venue's gone. I vaguely remember going to eat Japanese food at a restaurant that no longer exists near LACMA. Okay. And then we went to this venue to go see Janelle Monae. I can't, it, it had the word American in it, maybe. Was there an American something something? I don't know. Somewhere around LACMA. But I just remember thinking, like, if you're not into this, her performances you... are very strange. Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 if you're not if you're not there for it and you're there looking at this performance from the outside, you would think, like, what what in God's name am I looking at? Because there am is a part at... there is a part in her Metropolis suite performances where um her backup dancers come in and are they dressed up like mummies or like they're aliens? in mu- they're in robes they're in monk robes yeah, 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 and they yeah. have mirror they have mirrors for faces yeah, yeah, they're yeah, char- yeah. characters from her 
you know, they're they're the ones who like take the androids back to get their minds wiped if they try to escape in her, yeah. in her movies. And, but and you if imagine, you don't know that, yeah, and you also have to imagine that this is in an era where she's she's performing at the Viper in a Room. Club. She doesn't have yeah. a promotional budget, so yeah. this all has a very DIY craftsy kind of feel to it. Yeah, were you with us when we saw her perform at the Hollywood Bowl? Yes. Okay, because when because when we saw her open for Adele. Was that the show? It was. Oh my God. That's right. You're right. I forgot about the opening. I, I was talking about like, I saw her when she headlined the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, but you're no, right. no, 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 When no. she opened for Adele, she opened for, she opened for Shaka, Shaka Khan, Khan and then yes. Adele. Yeah. So we saw, we saw, we saw Janelle Monet open for Shaka Khan who opened for Adele at the Hollywood Bowl. So the indignity of Janelle Monet having to perform probably at like, 5.30 p.m. Oh my God, it daylight. was so bright. It was so bright. Broad daylight to the Hollywood Bowl, maybe 10% <laughs> capacity. But we're there. We're already eating our picnics and drinking mm-hmm, bottles mm-hmm. of wine at this point. And honestly, like I, as a big fan of Jan- Janelle Monet, I was like, I want to see her. So mm-hmm. we got there early. But just the pure smallness and sadness of that performance. And then to kind of view her oddity through the eyes of some of the people that we were with that were not fans of hers. Who have no idea who she is. That's yeah, right. to, to witness that and to, to realize like, oh, from the outside, if I'm not a big fan of her and I'm not a big fan of this music, this is bizarre. And I don't know why she's here. Because she went out, she went out and she was like painting and... Yeah, um, she did a whole thing. Yeah, it was... It's, it's that whole... You know, she had a vision and it's one of those things where if the vision can be executed perfectly and in the right space and at time... Like I said, everything is so nighttime driven, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's... It's got to be dark because this takes place, like her whole thing takes place in a dark future where androids are subservient to humans. Um, they're forbidden from loving or, you know, falling <laughs> in love. If not, they'll be chased and torn apart. You know, it's like, it's like this whole, this whole thing and doing it in the daytime at an outdoor amphitheater. <laughs> Yeah, just it just doesn't translate. But uh, you know, I, I will say that having seen her after when she returned triumphantly to the bowl to headline it several years later, I mean, she was fantastic. She brought out Stevie Wonder, and I will always thank her as the person, the artist who allowed me to see Stevie Wonder live because I've never been able to see him live, and he came out as a guest mm-hmm. and he performed because they're friends, you know. But you know, to continue with that with that LA Weekly uh, review. The guy was a fan or like yeah. was positive. Okay. He loved he loved Tightrope. He loved Cold War because she'd been previewing it at that time. Um, but he said, the girl is brilliant, but I'm not sure anyone knows what to do with her quite yet. She's not as dramatic as Lady Gaga, not as easy to categorize as Beyonce's little sister trying to be a hipster and probably more talented than both. And this man ostensibly likes these I would agree with that whole characterization though. I it's, would it, too. It's, it's kind of a hot take. It's kind of uh, well. It's just the way it's pro- stated. A little bit problematic, but it's the um, way it's stated. But if I think about if I think about what he's saying, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's that's all. I think that's all very true, and I think that's probably what is percolating in the minds of like record industry people, mm-hmm. which is like, what do we do with Janelle Monae mm-hmm. at this point in time? Because exactly, like you have Lady Gaga who has a particular kind of shtick or like a narrative to her music and a performance style that has become her signature and is yeah. well and you wonder a little bit of like an eccentric you know but you you wonder though 
what would what would the reaction had been if Lady Gaga was black? Because I I think because, that well, honestly though, I think that Lady Gaga was not doing anything quite as out there as what Janelle Monáe is doing. I think we treated Lady Gaga like she was doing weird things because she was wearing weird triangle sunglasses. But, but she was always songs, in character her too. Songs were, like her, her songs way. were about getting drunk in the club or true. Getting, true. What true. is the poker, poker face? Yeah, you know, like all true. that stuff. It's not like I feel like I feel like people really did start to abandon Lady Gaga more when she tried to live up to that image of being weird for weird sake. I, I can see. I can see that it, it was always this package that's very like silver lame and weird wigs singing songs about like just dance or you know alejandro like those songs are they're not that serious (laughs) yes they're not that serious but she was people were able to hear it i mean i guess the the difference is that her music were pure pure pop and you know janelle's even though she had a had a high concept and all of this stuff like the the influences were so varied sometimes and so unexpected it didn't fit into a box it wasn't like to your point radio or club friendly necessarily and you know, it, it just, it, it was interesting because it, it kind of set me down a, a, this path of like, she's doing concept albums, concept albums like Ziggy Stardust, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust, in, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Sgt. Pepper by The Beatles. There are certain concept albums where like they're revered as sort of brilliant and like, these are cool, but like I couldn't think of a single concept album by a black artist that was revered in the same way or or artists who were able to have a concept album. I mean, now outside of hip hop, because like Jay-Z had American Gangster and he kind of does that thing. There's Kendrick Lamar. But like for a black female artist, you don't really see examples of concept albums like of, of that nature, mm. right? Like where you're a character and you're kind of, telling this whole story. So, you know, again, we're just like kind of like fighting all of these things. And I mean, you know, while this is happening, while she's putting out, you know, between Arc Android and between Electric Lady um, is three years. She, um, you know, goes on tour. She signs as a cover girl spokesmodel. Like she's, you know, she's, she's increasing her profile. You know, she earned a Grammy nomination for Metropolis. Um, mm-hmm. She earned more for, um, she ends up having eight total Grammy nominations um, between her albums. It's just, you know, it's, it's by the time you get to electric lady and primetime, people know who she is, but you know, I think there is like either you fall into the camp of I'm going to go along with this or I'm not. And I think you see that in the reception. Yeah. I mean, do you think that anyone, do you think that the majority of people even knew a Janelle Monet song at all? Probably not. I mean, they might have known Tightrope. Because I feel like at the time when she was doing the CoverGirl commercials, I was kind of shocked because I was like, do people know who, who she, she is? is? And and increasingly, even after that, she was doing, she was starting to do movies. She was starting to do movie appearances. And yeah. I think she was voicing cartoons. And then she was doing, mm-hmm. you know, obviously she was in Moonlight. She was in Hidden Figures. Um, those came out. No, those came out after uh electric lady but yeah yeah yeah. yeah. but no but like i feel like for most people that might be the moment when you recognized who she was yeah 
Well, she talks about, I know you had asked me, you know, and one of the, when we had first discussed talking about Janelle Monet, you had asked, you know, is she sort of going more in the direction of film and TV because it, it's given her a higher profile in a way that her music is not. And, um, that was a question that was posed by a New York Times profile that came out in 2018 because that's what fans speculated because, you know, there were these long periods in between albums, right? You had 2007, then you have two th- uh, for the first EP, 2010 for her first album, 2013 for the second album. And then by the time Dirty Computer comes out, it's 2018. So five years between that. And she says, no, honestly, the reason there was such a long period in between albums was that she was very close with Prince and Prince mm-hmm. was like a mentor to her and he died in the like you know while she was making it and she had a hard time getting back into the space of like doing the music and writing what she wanted but like in addition it was you know i mean the, the production schedules for the movies and the tv and things were you know, there's a, you know, we're, we're kind of, they were hard to schedule around, but she said that music is, is the thing. It's her first love. And so the music will always be the core, but you know, in that time, she also, you know, they, um, Wonderland became its own label. Um, they have their own, um, table of artists, including, do you remember Jadena? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's on that label. Classic I didn't man. He was on the, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize he was on that label. Oh um, yeah, no. I there's a there's the whole like, yeah, the the family tree of people that are like Janelle Monet affiliated. Well, and in the director of her videos is Alan Ferguson, who is married to Solange. Oh, so you know, there's that. They're you know, they're all they're all good friends. They have that tight Atlanta community. Um, the description of the one Solange is from Houston Art Center. I know, but they <laughs> just very. Saying. Her artistic I know because home. Solange was sending out concerned messages about frozen toilets and stuff. Yes, yes, yes. All I'm saying is they, the people that work with, um, you know, they have they have like their art, her uh, the Wonderland Art Center in Atlanta, which they've modeled or which she's modeled after Paisley Park, Prince's um, compound mm-hmm. in, um, you know, in 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 uh, Minnesota, and. Um, yeah, I mean, they're just, it, it's just been really interesting to see, you know, you her more recent, Janelle's more recent work, Dirty Computer, is her most popular. And, pro- and you mentioned earlier, like, more commercial. It is more commercial. It's also more personal, right, in a way mm-hmm. that... Um, the the first two albums were not. I mean, there were, you know, like... like you can only be so per- as personal. There's a, there's a limit to how personal you can be if you're speaking through an avatar. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, by the time Dirty Computer comes out, Janelle, she uses it as an opportunity to come out as pansexual and, you know, basically a queer, queer black woman. And she no longer feels restricted or the need to hide behind the persona of... Cindy Mayweather. Mm-hmm. And so you see this sort of, you start to see it in Electric Lady. In the Queen video, she's wearing a black and white suit, like a military suit, but there's a big red sash type of element in it. Mm-hmm. And so she starts breaking away from the 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 black, the, the, the totally just black and white 
aesthetic, right? There's a little bit of a riff there. And then you get to Dirty Computer and it's just an explosion of color. It's just so colorful and so so much more expressive in a way about sex and sexuality and queerness. It's it's I was I watched um the Dirty Computer short film or sorry, the emotion video. Uh <laughs> Oh, the emotion picture, I should say, um, that accompanied it last night. I'd never seen it. I forgot to watch it when it came, when Dirty Computer came out. And, you know, to that extent, because the music felt so different, like it felt more pop consumable mm-hmm. than uh, than her previous albums, I had assumed that it didn't have anything to do with Cindy Mayweather and the Android story anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not true. It's just she feels more free to express herself now. You know, it took her a while. And I think she talks about, you know, prior to this, it was very, uh, uh, the conversations around otherness, queerness, um, you know, things. It was like, not necessarily about her, but like being this avatar to represent people and speak for these people and represent their struggle, right? And solidarity and hope and pursuit of joy through the struggle. But it was like, it, it was sort of divorced from her personally. And she talks about how like, you know, it wasn't like she just came out in 2018, but she struggled with this idea that she'd built up Cindy Mayweather and the persona that she'd been performing as so much that she as a person, when she revealed who she was and like as kind of this person who was struggling with anxiety and struggling with like emotion, like, you know, just living her life, that the fans wouldn't be there for it. And that like she wouldn't be as interesting as the character she'd created and also just not wanting to have her life turned into a tabloid fodder mm-hmm. because she'd revealed, you know, sort of her queer identity. Yeah. So she's still really cagey about it, but you know, as, as a, as a means to like kind of protect herself, she deflects a lot. Like when you ask her, like, cause at the time, like Tessa Thompson, the actress plays her love interest in throughout that, the, the music videos that, that form the emotion picture that accompany the album and dirty computer. And um, there were room, they were photographed together quite a bit, but you know, she, she's like, she won't comment on like whether or not they were dating. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't, cause you know, that's just not important. She just, she would always say like, I just hope people feel seen. Yeah. So it's still it's, like sort of being cagey. It's easy to see how like a person's life can really fall apart as a public figure, allowing people to see into your life right yeah yeah like yeah. once you it's like you give them an inch and they take a yard right yeah very like that. Fr- britney spears right yeah it's, it's easy to see these cautionary tales all around of mm-hmm. celebrities that have given too much of themselves to the public eye and at a certain point you have two archetypes you have the people that are an open book to the public or you have the people that are completely closed off we almost don't have any middle ground anymore You know, Mm -hmm. you have celebrities that absolutely just don't engage in social media, don't give any information about their personal lives to the media or in interviews and prefer to exist with a little air of secrecy, Mm -hmm. you know, I think specifically for that reason, though, that you see, you see how it can destroy people psychologically um, when the public just has too much access. Mm -hmm. Janelle Monet. Always an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a uh, a metal veil. Um, I think less so now. I mean, not yeah. less so, but I, 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 you know, I, I didn't listen to a lot of Dirty Computer at the beginning. 
Oh, okay. I mean, I, so I was, you know, I spent a lot of time this week just listening, and I was like, this is all so good, too. And I just love her visual aesthetic. Like, her visuals are so good. Because I watched them from start to finish. I started with Metropolis and the um, Moon, Many Moons video, concept video, or it's like a short film. I watched all of her short film content leading up, and it's like, she was doing such incredible storytelling, which, mm-hmm. you know, is also in service of like, Wonderland is now producing film and TV. So it's all, you know, it's, it's all, it's leading to a point, but I, I really enjoyed, I actually, the more I listened, the more I enjoyed just like her lyrics and just what she has to say in, in, in these songs. And, and the, the funny thing about primetime, the reason it sounds so different, I didn't realize until I started digging into it, so Primetime is about, it's sung in character as Cindy Mayweather. And she's singing, the, Miguel is her love interest, Johnny Vice or whatever. But what we're seeing in Primetime is the genesis of the Cindy Mayweather story. So in the sec, by the time you get to the second album, it's kind of like a flashback to, you know, she's meeting this human. She falls in love with this human. And mm-hmm. he exposes, he like, she's working in this nightclub. Um, it's kind of abusive. She gets out. He takes her to this underground dance party where she learns more about music and like, you know, just performing and realizes that she can do this. And that's sort of the beginning. It's a flashback to the beginning of, of the Cindy Mayweather story. And so mm-hmm. just to realize that um, Miguel is sort of the avatar for the thing that kind of sets the whole story in motion for her was really interesting. So I uh, it just which is why it's so tender in a way that like a lot of her other music was not. Hmm. But yeah, that's that's kind of it from for me and Janelle. I mean, it, she's not a flop. You know, she's she's very high profile. She's 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 doing lots of things. Um, just not a lot of music. I mean, she's just never broken through with her music in yeah. maybe the way that we had hoped. Um, I think listening to her output, it's easy to it's easy to understand why she's never broken through, really. Mm-hmm. Um, this song that you're talking about, Primetime, I think it's kind of like the one of the first steps she makes towards... Um, commercial. To do, doing something a little bit more commercial, but also not being completely hamstrung into the narrative that she's trying to express. It's 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 more universal. It's something where like, I don't know if, you know, when you're doing a concept album, how much of it is, you know, your concept and you create the songs versus like, you have some songs, you have some loose ideas for songs and then you craft the songs into your concept. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, um, like, can it live outside of the, the work, the universe? You know, does it only live in that story or can it live outside? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of the first, one of the first areas where I feel like, okay, she's not totally stuck on the idea of the arc Android suite. These songs work within that narrative, but they're not specifically of this narrative. Like they're more universal than that. they're a little bit broader than that in their appeal. What's which it's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, which isn't to say that they're all pop songs. I think that they're still yeah. as diverse, or if not more diverse, in specifically in the Electric Lady. Like, she's she's creating a more diverse range of music here, and in that regard, I feel like maybe it didn't work as well for pop audiences. 
but it's it's not quite as it's not quite as strange and distant i think as the first two albums well and i think what's interesting is this song is about it's a basically a love song it's a love song a love story that like to your point is more it's more pop because it's more universal her other songs when we're talking about them being in character they're all still like kind of like activist songs of you know right like they're message songs they're not it's not just like exposition or talking about like weird things in space like we're talking about like what it's like to feel different and like having to to fight to to not feel like something was wrong with you right like all of these things that like are also kind of or that that speak to people and have a universality to them um you know it's in the way that it's i think it's in the way that a lot of sci-fi it's the way we hear it yeah 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 a lot of sci-fi is built up on relatable themes or yeah i get you know like if i think about like you know star wars as like uh they're kind of it's like fascism right it's like nazis they're like nazis (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. The Empire of the Nazis. <laughs> yes. I was like, So, so in yes. that in that regard, like you can you can you can extrapolate those like universal messages from science fiction, but the science fiction is fictionalization of it maybe it gives you like a little bit of distance from the actual topic to give you a little bit of comfort, right? Like if you're talking about homophobia or you're talking about racism and you're talking about violence against people of a specific race, maybe it's easier to um, listen to that message when it's about androids in the future being discriminated against because they are androids. Yeah. And that's what she, she talks about, right? She talks about like, you know, her whole, her whole thing now is just, and she realizes it from the beginning. It was something she wanted to do, but you know, even now more so with her, with her role film roles um, was to really give voice to people that didn't have a voice and to humanize people that, um, you know, others had a hard time relating to. And so, um, you know, you, you see that like in her songs, but then like specifically, I, I guess she'd been, she'd been offered like 30 different roles, turn them all down until she got moonlight. Um, and she felt that that role in moonlight was, and, and that story was really something that needed to be told about, you know, young black men who were, you know, struggling with the with their identity and their sexuality right like um it wasn't she chose that then then when she did hidden figures it's like these not just the fact that these women were sort of forgotten i mean that's part of it she wanted to tell the story but she she also commented later that like you know it served as a as a as she was becoming much more of an activist um she it was a bridge to talking to conservatives um, who who normally wouldn't have given her messages or the messages of equality um, a second thought, but in watching the movie Hidden Figures, were like, these black women helped us get to space, and this is how we treated them. Yeah, like they couldn't look away, and it actually wasn't a vehicle for her to have bigger conversations, and and so, yeah, it's 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 just funny that you know because trying to do that within the confines or the constructs of pop music Mm -hmm. uh as universal as those messages may be the reception and the way you experience it are not as um are not always what you'd like there's been a big shift i feel 
in the way that we think about that level of accommodation. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I feel like there's, there's a push now to be much less accommodating in terms of having to be euphemistic or having to be metaphorical, metaphorical about these messages. Yeah. In essence, like why should we have to accommodate our opposition in order to compel them? But at the same time, yeah. it's it's kind of completely understandable. Like what Janelle Monet is saying about yeah. how do you compel someone who disagrees with you on these matters of social justice to change their mind? How do you compel them to change their mind when they are so closely identified with it? Well, and I think what she's doing now and what she's articulated, because she also did, um, there's a song called Turntables that came out last year, um, and it was for the Stacey Abrams Fair Fight documentary. And it's less about changing people's minds and more about speaking to the people you want to rally. So it's being a voice to encourage you know, participation, civic engagement, um, to encourage those... Uh, queer, you know, um, the LGBTQIA plus community, you know, as they, as they, you know, fight for more rights. It's it's more about like being that voice and Mm -hmm. not being a voice who's like, okay, let me figure out how to break through. Because I think to your point, it's like, how do you, it's not, the people who are fighting the fight need joy and need to be encouraged and need to have their story told and celebrated among themselves. And I think that's much more what she's doing now. Yeah. And you know, the, you know, there's, I, I think it's, I think it works. I, I, you know, yeah. I, I just really love her. And like having read the profiles, there's a, there was an interview in them magazine. Um, it was a conversation mm-hmm. between Lizzo. Is that a print magazine? It is. Oh. It's print and digital. Okay. But, um, Lizzo interviews Janelle and they talk about, you know, sort of the pandemic and they talk about her queer coming out as queer and just everything that's been going on this last year. Um, It's really good conversation, but it's, I just, I, I, I've always loved Janelle Monae, but like really digging into her background, digging into her music, digging into like her interviews and profiles. I, I respect her so much. Um, and really appreciate what she's doing. So prime time, go back and listen to it because it deserves its flowers. <laughs> Do it. It's great. Um, where does that come from? Flowers. Give them their flowers. What is, what is that? Is that a it's reference? A, it, I feel like it's a, it's a, it's either black or drag. <laughs> uh, okay. Cause it's, you know, right. Cause it's, cause, cause actually, you know, um, both Lizzo and, uh, Janelle, they're talking about like that's all they want to do now. Make sure people are getting their flowers. Like all the women, people who've been contributing to this, just give and get flowers. <laughs> just making sure that people are getting the respect and the accolades they deserve when they're alive to get it, and not just your flowers when you're dead. Mm. You know, like people bring flowers to a funeral to honor someone, and very rarely do they do it do they give those accolades when they're alive? Right. And it's, it's sort of about making sure that you heap that praise. They get that shine in real time. I mean, I understood the, I understand the, the, uh, the meaning through context, but I, I just, I was just like, Oh, we're saying giving flowers a lot. <laughs> well, I was, I was explaining it. 
I know, I know, I know. But anyway, that's Janelle Monet giving her her flowers. That's Janelle Monet. Um, you know what, Jason? Yeah. I'd like to give some special thanks. Would you like to mm-hmm. listen to me give some special thanks? I would. Okay. Special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Check us out on social media at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. Email us as always at flopredeemer at gmail.com. Bye-bye. <laughs>